Anthony is going to be teaching out of Job 13. Uh, the title, I think, if you're keeping, is On Love and Loss. And here's where this comes from a little bit, is typically uh, first Sunday, second Sunday of the year is Vision Sunday in most churches. The, there was great irony in 2020 when all the churches were like, 2020 Vision. Here's where we're going to go and grow. And then COVID hit, and you're like, uh, that's embarrassing. Um, and so as I was in my office praying back in probably October and planning out the sermon calendar for the first part of this year, there is this Sunday that's looking at me in the face and going, what are you going to do this Sunday? So in praying, I thought, I want to ask my friend Anthony what his reflections would be on love and loss. Um, and that's it. I, I said, I think the most helpful vision understanding anything for a new year would be that for us. And so I asked him, and he said, yes. And so I'm going to read from Job chapter 13, and he's going to tell you otherwise, his theories of why, that's, that's coming from the source. So I, I get the first word, and you'll get the last. So Job chapter 13, verse 13 through 16. Let me have silence, and I will speak. And let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our hearts and attention now towards your word, we ask that you would help us, that you would speak, that you would clarify, that you would convict and challenge and comfort us in the way that only you can, through your servant and our friend Anthony. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, you can probably hear my voice that um, God gave me a, a, a double blessing, that I'm a little, a little sick. <laughs> So I'm sad and sick, so it should be wonderful today. <laughs> um, so I like consolation hugs. Um, you can't give them to me until next week, okay? Uh, so, so store them up. Jorgen, I want to hug big one next week, okay? Deal? Okay. All right. So, you know, some might be asking before we, you know, why, before we get back into um, the trenches of going through the books of the Bible, why would we uh, essentially start the year off with uh, a sermon on the subject of grief? And I thought, man, I could really hit the brakes on you. And, and, and uh, I, I, thought, I just thought about it when, when John was talking. I could say, um, well, we're going to switch the entire sermon and title right now. It's a new me in 2023. How's that? Is that, that? It's got a ring to it, right? I think I, I, think I saw that on a, a YouTube clip or something. <laughs> anyway, no, we're going to talk about grief. Um, but a couple reasons, or you, perhaps you have questions why we're talking about grief. And, um, you know, John is trying to beat me to the punch like the little brother he is. Um, but I, I, have, I have a couple ideas of why why uh, John asked me to teach on love and loss. And one is because I think John likes to see me squirm. 
because um, he's a sick, sick man. He's a, he's a, no, no, I, 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 I told Beth that joke, and she's like, you're so mean. Um, don't, don't say that, because he doesn't mean, that's not, that's not what John's, that's why, not why John's doing this. I said, I, I, I know, John, John is, a, is my best friend, and he actually finds me a blessing, which is a surprise to me. And, uh, and uh, he thinks I have something to offer you, so that's, that's John's thoughts around it. Um, but two, like, like I said, I, gotta, I, ha- I have to joke, because you, you know that the actual reason is, is really painful, because um, many of you know that I've spent uh, most of this year and some change uh, mourning the loss of my son, Miles Anthony Garcia. Uh, telling you how he died is not so important to me as because I, I, I want to tell you just a little bit about, about who he was. You see, uh, Miles was such a, a generous soul. He, wa- he was one who was always quick to, um, to give grace, but he, but he struggled terribly to receive it. Um, a line out of uh, Frederick Frederick Backman's book, Beartown, sort of succinctly summarizes uh, my son. You see, uh, Miles Anthony Garcia had the handsomest face, the saddest eyes, and the wildest heart. And um, we have a picture of of him um, in case you forgot what he looks like. Handsomest face, saddest eyes, wildest heart. You know, John and I have uh, regularly discussed um, this devastating loss in my life. We've discussed my process in it, and in uh, what I've learned thus far on uh, the journey. And before we get into what I'm going to say today, I. I, I want you to know that I don't believe I'm the ultimate authority um, when it comes to the subject of, of love and loss. I, I certainly understand the dangers of applying my experience like a blanket over uh, others who have struggled in similar fashions. So I'm coming from that place. I'm coming from a place that I, um, I offer to you what I've learned in my in my season of serious and unrelenting grief, and I hope you find it helpful. Um, it's in, and I'll also tell you this. What I'm going to tell you today is not comprehensive. I've got three thoughts for you, um, and then I'll get out of here. I'm going to go take a Benadryl and go to sleep. <laughs> Maybe two. Daddy might be taking two today. Uh, <laughs> um, Maybe chasing that with something else. I don't know. Um, oh boy, I'm in trouble already. Already. But I'm, this is not comprehensive. This is not a comprehensive thing. There's three thoughts I'm going to give you. But seriously, if you're struggling with grief, 
I'll, I'll talk to you until you get tired of listening to me. I'll tell you every little angle that I have observed in it, the things that my wife and I have endured, my son, my family. Well, I'll talk to you about it all. It's, it's, it's all there for you, okay? So just know that. You can come to my house. We can, we can cry for hours if you want. It's always open. But uh, parameters today, like I said, for myself and for your understanding, I'm going to be talking about the duration, the direction, and the disbursement of grief. We're never going to get away from the dreaded alliteration. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, can't quit on a good thing, right? Um, for those of you who have appreciated the alliteration, that's for you. Okay, Monica, um, you've always been so encouraging. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so the duration of grief. Like I said, it's been a year and some change. And what I've discovered is that my grief, it hasn't gone away. I turn around, I look at my son, and I still cry. I miss him. I miss him. I'm sad. Grief is not going away. Good news is, I don't feel like I'm drowning anymore. Uh, but I'm still, unexpectedly, always being hit by waves of sadness. It's, and it's really irritating, because you don't know when the waves are going to hit you. You don't know if they're going to be when you wake up in the morning. You don't know if it's going to be when you're sitting in the backyard. You don't... You don't know if it's going to be on a Sunday right before you preach. You guys all often, this past year, when I'm crying through something, it's because I've been crying a lot prior to that. But like I said, it's still, it's getting better. But the waves of sadness still come. And it's, it's like you would imagine the obvious stuff, you know, holidays, the, his birthday, the anniversary of, of his death. That was horrible. That was, that was pretty heavy. And, and of course, the, the real kicker here is no matter how far I feel like I get from the storm, the, the clouds so far have been super faithful in finding me. So what a lucky guy, right? <laughs> But I guess E.A. Buccianetti, I don't, know if she, I don't even know if this girl's Italian, but that's how I'm going to say it. I guess she was right. Because she said, when, when all is said and done, grief is the price that you pay for love. It's the price you pay. If you're going to love someone deeply, it's going to hurt deeply when you lose them. Love of my son and losing him has taken something from me. It's an amputation, and much like amputees that have the phantom feeling of a lost appendage, I still, I, I still in my heart find myself reaching out to be close to a son who was once very present. And what's really weird is because love for my son is present and just as present as strong as it ever was, and because I believe in the resurrection, it's also an attachment. It's not just an amputation, but it's also an attachment, a tethering from my heart which stretches through the universe 
all the way into the celestial city. The strands ultimately connect to Christ, my Savior, and all those I have loved deeply on this earthly uh, pilgrimage. I've got a white snot now. And from the way I, I feel right now, grief doesn't seem to be going away. Um, in Santiago del Boy, he's a, he's a psychotherapist practicing in Chicago. He's a professional, and he says, um, who, who is it to say how long is too long? Your grief, for as long as you need to, even if that takes a lifetime. You grieve as long as you need to, even if it takes a lifetime. You grieve as long as you need to, even if that takes a lifetime. So yeah, grief is still here. And what other parents I've talked to who have lost children of, of their own, they've told, from what they've told me, I might want to settle in for quite a ride. It's probably going to be until uh, my last breath. So, for some people, grief is a lifetime. And we Christians, we have to be very mindful of this because it's an amputation. A lot of people are walking through life with a limp. And you never tell someone with a, with a prosthetic to hurry up or you'd be a terrible human being. <laughs> so even though I don't have a prosthetic, um, you know, be nice to me, all right, John? Be nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh. hmm. This is why I've selected this particular passage out of Job, is because um, there's a lot going on in it. And John and I did a pretty decent job on that sermon. That's one of our better team teachings, I, I think. Um, so if you want to really dig into Job, go, go check it in the archives. Um, but I just want to get right into the text without giving you all the stuff. You see, in chapter 13, we're smack dab in the middle of one of Job's speeches to his friends. Really, what it is, is a rebuttal to his friends and their, uh, around their ignorant ideas around God and uh, the reasons for why um, Job is suffering so deeply. His friends, they collectively want to find out why Job's life was blown up. They want to fix it so that everybody can get back to business as usual. And isn't that how we treat a lot of problems? Let's, let's fix it, and then we move on. But what do you do when some things can't be fixed? What do you do when some things can't be understood? Well, their understanding of God and... And the world around them is that they think that the world runs on the retribution principle. You want to learn more about the retribution principle? I've got some good theology on that in that team teaching I was telling you about. But what they mean is they, it mean, it meaning that they think Job is suffering because he must have sinned greatly. It's the way a lot of people think. If, you, if something bad happens to you, what bad thing did you do, right? 
Snot again. It's the way a lot of people think. And therefore, his friends, and after they grieve with him, because they did grieve with him, they attempt to figure out what Job did. And they mean to be helpful to him. But what they unknowingly become to Job is uh, a big pain in the tuchus, and they add a lot more heartache to this man. It's really a bummer. The book of Job, among many things, is a reminder for us not to speak or speculate on why God does or does not allow suffering to reach the shores of our life. Because here's the thing, guys. No one really knows why anything happens. None of us happen to be God's counselor. None of us are sitting in the throne room uh, hearing what the Trinity is going to decide in his divine sovereign will. So none of us really knows. And so it's kind of silly that we sit around and speculate on things. In this season, what I have found, here's what I've found. It's not exactly like Job's situation, my life. But people who are not okay with mystery, they then therefore become um, often mistaken and misguided around the ways God works. And sadly, like Job's friends, they're all too free to share those, those ideas with me. People have shared with me some pretty silly and trivial ideas around why uh, Miles died. And I don't want to say what exactly, because that might unleash potential hurt. And um, I don't want to do that, of course. But what we must remember is that people, when they're dealing with the death of their most precious loved ones, um, when they're in their rawest of states, death is the most devastating thing. And actually, C.S. Lewis, when he was dealing with the loss of his wife, who he warmly referred to as H in A Grief Observed, he poetically illustrates this pain. And I'll read it to you now. He says, It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death, or death does not matter. There is death. And whatever is matters, and whatever happens has consequences. And it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces? If I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her face, her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? What did someone say to Lewis? What was it? What religious, sentimental pleasantry was passed on to him in this most painful moment of his life to make him write that down in a journal that none of us were ever meant to see? Thank God uh, we can have that journal. Lewis would later, would later write 
Um, don't talk to me about the consolations of religion, or I shall suspect that you do not understand. Guys, we must remember that it is natural and right for people to grieve the loss of a loved one, and that it might take a lifetime. And most importantly, we cannot deny people that right. And so, whatever time needs to be taken, that is what we offer. It may require a patience that we don't possess, but if we really want to walk with people in pain, then we must find the patience that God has for us. And here's a little tidbit. I found that in grief, silence, sorry, and tears are very, very sufficient. They're, they're, they're more than enough. Now to the direction of grief. Surprisingly, what people have said to me has not been my biggest obstacle. And I, and I actually want to share with you some of the things that people have said to me because it's hilarious. I mean, funny. Can I, can I tell you what, the, what the, the guy at the crematorium told me? Because he's not here. Right? Do you think he'll come to church here? <laughs> can I tell you? Yeah? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, okay. So first time, first when we got there, you know, it's like two days after Miles died, and he's asking how, how we found them. He's, he's doing marketing research. <laughs> I was like, dude, man, God bless you. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then when, we, when uh, I got called to get his death certificate, he, put, he puts it on the, to, on the desk, and he said it hot off the presses. <laughs> Man, it's like a fantastic comedy bit. Like, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Surprisingly, the things that people say have not undone me. They have not unnerved me. Because I understand what it feels like to have that awkward feeling when people are going through the most difficult portions of their life. I'm a pastor. I have to step in every time to someone's horrible moment of life and have wisdom and grace and love. And I, and I know deep in my heart, I have, I have nothing for them. And thank God Jesus does, and all I have to do is pass that along, right? <laughs> thank God. Because, man, I'm freaking out a lot of those times. But... It, but I'm not so worried about what people have said. You want to know the, the direction of grief. The biggest barrier for me has been the way grief has gone through me on a self-reflective level. I'm going to be really, really transparent with you guys. So you have to be nice to me, okay? I mean, really nice. You, you can't say anything mean to me after church, all right? <laughs> 
See, this part requires uh, an important piece of context of my life, um, but also um, it requires a metaphor, and I'll give you the metaphor first. You see, grief is like a, a wrecking ball. When uh, Miles' death crashed into the structure of my life, what I observed in the wreckage was interesting, and personally, it terrified me. And now for the, the context. Some of you know and some of you don't know, when I was 21 years old, my little sister, uh, Tiana, she died uh, in, a, in a car accident when she was 17. It, it broke me, but I didn't grieve the way that I'm grieving right now. With my sister, I was able to experience what, um, what Paul calls um, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And I was essentially able to, to move through it. But what was interesting um, was Miles' death actually caused me to revisit my sister's death. And it, and it raised a question that haunted me for months. I mean, it, was, it haunted me for months. It was this. Am I cursed? Am I cursed? She died. My son died. When's, when's the next one happening? So that, is it, it, did they happen in 20-year increments? How do, how, don't I, how do I win those lotteries? It was just the doom of waiting for the next awful thing to drop in my life and wondering if I'm truly a cursed individual. I mean, I can tell you a lot of other sad things, but that's just one correlation I wanted to, to make with you. And here's the thing. Here's, here's what was really difficult um, as I was working through that is when I was asking if I'm cursed, then I started to begin to think about those who are around me are also cursed, and they're going to suffer the consequences of it. You see, the hardest thing, I, th I think, I think the hardest thing, I'm not even sure, maybe, but I think the hardest thing for me has been having to watch my, my son and my, and my wife cry, uh, but especially my wife. Just wondering if she's going to be okay. Just wondering if she's going to be able to move forward. Just, yeah, that's a scary thing. It's really scary. And, I, and then, of course, there's that, that lingering, haunting thought of doom that is, am I cursed? And I remember when I was talking to Beth about this, I was telling her where I was at, what I was thinking, and I was telling her, I'm sorry that you know me, that you have to know me. I'm sorry that you ever met me, because I felt like, wow, I'm, I brought so much pain into your life, and it's obviously, you start thinking through some of those things, realize how difficult that is, but it seems logical in the moment. In the moment, it, it seems, it feels logical, but let me also say, it's also very demonic, and theologically inaccurate. <laughs> just, just putting that out there. But here's the thing, guys. 
when you are, Lewis in Grief Observe, he says uh, fear, or um, uh, this pain of loss like that, suffering on that level, it feels like fear. And in fact, when I was typing out this sermon, I started shaking again, just like when, I, when, I, when we lost the boy. Shaking. Because it's, it's just a, it's an indescribable feeling. It's indescribable the depth of, of hurt and pain and anguish that one could feel and experience. And I tell you what, living in this fallen world that has been broken by sin, it's, it's, it's hard. And what that, there's, a, there's an assault that goes on in your, in your mind in those most challenging of times. And the world of flesh and the devil want to wanna get in there and, uh, and really wreck shop. And that's how the enemy wrecked shop in my life for those, those months where I thought, man, I'm just a curse. Crazy things go through our heads. Right now, you know, my wife and, and I are walking with one of her friends. She's, she just turned 40 and found out she has breast cancer. They, and she has five kids, three adopted kids. Um, they got the breast cancer out, and then went in to take her appendix out the following week and found out she had a different, entirely different cancer in her body. And she texts Beth and says, um, why would God give me all these kids and then, and, then, and, let, and then let me die? And then her thought is, what did I do wrong? Right? And of course it doesn't make sense. And none of us would, would, would hear that and not offer words of consolation and clarity. But those are the crazy things that go on in your mind when you are suffering. You go through, you, you, they're not right, but they're, they're there. They're real. And it's an assault. I felt like I was a curse for a little bit. I am a curse, but not that kind of curse. <laughs> I'm a, a good curse. Um, you see, when we're going through heartache, only the word of God can really console us, the truth of it. In Galatians 3.13, it tells me that Jesus became a curse for me so that all my sins could be forgiven, so I wouldn't be cursed. Jesus experienced hell and separation from God so that I would never have to be separated from God. And I have to hold on to this truth. And I also must remember to be careful, and I think this is for all of us, to be careful when the finitude of my mind reduces God down to very dangerous misconceptions. Because that's how we go off a cliff theologically and head into real disaster. I, like Lewis, understand and he says this in the grief observed, that my idea of God is not a divine idea. It's not always a di- Our ideas of God, guys, aren't always a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He, shaz- he shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast, meaning he destroys religion. That's what God does. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. Think about that, guys. The incarnation is the supreme example of this shattering religion. 
It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. And most are offended by the iconoclasm. Um, and blessed are those who are not. Gosh, that is rich with wisdom. And that just comes out of a, a, an observation of the incarnation. That the Messiah didn't come as a, as a jacked dude on steroids with two swords in hand and came in and, and just chopped Rome's head off uh, with one fell swoop and then set up, you know, the, the biggest rave in Jerusalem's history. No, it came as a baby. His mom had to wipe his bottom and his hair was slaughtering all the children. His parents had to, they had to run to Egypt. That is the God who saves us. That is how God has saved us. Let that settle in to your soul. Let, let that sink in. I still don't get it. The direction of grief was really important for me, guys, because it was difficult, but it was important because it drilled deep into the recesses of my mind, and it dredged up an old wound, and the, and the enemy, enemy, enemy of my soul tried to exploit it. And in, in this sense, grief was good because it made me ask, do I really believe the things that I preach? The things that I tell you on Sunday, do I believe them deep in the core of who I am? Do I believe that in my soul? Hell or high water, love, loss. Do I believe that Christ has set me free from the curse of sin and death? The short answer is yes, I do. Now some might say, and here's where we have to remember Job's friends again. Some might say, this is why it has all gone this way that I might know the power of the gospel on a deeper level. Yes and no. Okay? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that grief as a product of loss produces a deeper trust in the pardon provided by the gospel. Yes. And no. God did not kill my son so that I might learn this lesson on the deepest of levels. Because the gospel proclaims that the father sacrificed a son once for all. Once for all. Once for all. Which brings me back to mystery in all this. Why is Miles gone at 20? I don't know. And I'm not interested in hearing ideas around why. I don't know. But if the boy with the handsomest face, the saddest eyes, and the wildest heart 
needed the rest that only Christ can give, I am at peace with this. Which brings me to the disbursement of grief. God has given me this little gift in grief. I have found that it is possible for peace and pain to coexist in the life of a Christian. It's possible. I know it's a paradox, but it's possible. I know it's an oxymoron. Even pages, when I was typing it out in my little, um, my little program, my little computer software program, even pages tried to autocorrect me on it. I put peace, like, you know, tranquility, and it, it changed it to peace, like a, like a piece of toast or paper. Even autocorrect says, no, those two words, they don't go together. But that's what God does. God is the God of paradox. Our doctrine is full of them. That's why I, that's why I laugh when... Um, when, when, when people come at me with their doctrine and they've got it all wound up so tight, every screw tight, and they, can, they can lay it out to you perfect. And I say, that's so cute. I just want to pat them on the, on the head and say, well, you'll live a little bit more and you'll learn a little bit more and then you'll come back, you know, with those screws a little loose. <laughs> yeah. and, I think, and I think that's my, just so you know, that's my journey as a as a a novice theologian. It's just, man, I had those suckers wound tight for a while. But man, the screws are loose, and the only thing that I'm certain of is, is, is Jesus. And I love talking all that doctrine. I love to get into that stuff. It's fun. But peace and pain, they can coexist. I think that peace and pain coexisting is a part of the now and the not yet nature of the kingdom of God. See, King Jesus has come, and through sacrifice, he has set up his rule and reign. Through sacrifice, he set up his rule and reign. Will we surrender to his subversive kingdom? And also, we know that there is, there's a future John and I did an okay job teaching, team teaching Revelation last week. It was just, it was just okay. Uh, if you're going to listen to a team teaching, listen, go, to, go check out Job, I think. Um, it was just okay. Um, but here is the thing that Revelation tells us is Jesus is going to come. And through sac... Uh, or, I'm sorry, Jesus, Jesus is, is coming. And there's a, there's a um, future that we're not experiencing quite yet. We're, we're still going to... We're still suffering, but Christ is going to return, and he's going to culminate his kingdom. The paradox has, has allowed me, this paradox has allowed me to hold the tension that peace and pain can be experienced in my grief. And let me tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I, I, know, I, I know I maybe not even eloquently said all that, but here's the thing. That truth has helped me not go insane. Do you, you know what I mean? That's, that's what's kept me from not losing my mind. 
that thing. In grief with Jesus, you get peace and pain. In grief without him, you only get the pain. This is a little attachment that I, I wanted to also put on it, because that's the big idea that I've taken away from it. The dispersion of, of, of uh, grief. But another gift, and maybe, I don't, this is not pandering, it's been you guys, sincerely. The gift has been you guys, this church. Your love, your prayer, support, your own stories of grief have helped carry me, truly, carry us. And you also, I think unbeknownst to all y'all, you've um, continued to pay for my therapy. You see, because my sermons are a two-for-one. Not only do you, do you get um, a sermon, but I, I get a lot of stuff off my chest and, and have therapy <laughs> with you every Sunday. <laughs> so you're like, you get a two-for-one. Uh, thank you for that. I don't know, I, I know a lot of Christians wouldn't want to come see a, a pastor was a shell of who he was crying most of the time in sermons. But you guys show up and I'm really grateful for that. So thank you for that. I may not always like standing up here spilling my guts, but it's helpful. Just talking to people helps. Therapy is a really important thing. I just happen to do it with you, with my wife. Um, so, closing thought. I'm, I'm done. The Benadryl is calling my name. So as Backman, in his book, Bear Town, he asked a question. He says, what do you do with a grief that is too large to absorb? Well, what I've done is you give it all the time that it needs. You let it transform you even further, and you take um, what it offers. And finally, we must remember that our God, who is outside of space and time, will return to reset all things into its proper order. Grief, among many things, will be uh, things that go away. Grief will be going away, and it will be a, a distant memory. And until then, until that happens, may we live our life loving God, our neighbor, and may we wait for his glorious appearing. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.